Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've been thinking a lot lately about civility. Of course, basic politeness and exercising good manners is essential. But I think civility, real civility, goes deeper. It means to choose our words carefully and thoughtfully in non-hurtful ways. It means to be respectful of how another person sees the world even when we heartily disagree. And to maintain a sense of humility, because as a wise friend of mine used to say, we could always be wrong. These are lofty goals which I practice imperfectly, of course. But that's the tone we strive for in these programs. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Libraries Reimagined from Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Probably never will a librarian ask you, why do you want this? Right? Their job isn't to ask you why. Their job is to say, how can I help you? And for library users, says Eric Kleinenberg, understanding the role of librarian as someone who helps you to locate resources without judging is often a relationship established at a young age. For so many people, the first moment of life where you get a card of identification that is yours, that recognizes you as an individual with responsibility and a mind of your own, is when you get your library card. Eric is professor of sociology at New York University. For his book, Palaces for the People, he's studied how we use public institutions. I watched so many children get their first library cards. I saw them there with their mothers or fathers. I saw the, the, the feeling of pride uh, express itself on the face of everybody in the room, you know, from the, the person making the card to the parents to the child, you know, herself. I watched them experience the kind of power and wonder of, of, of being recognized in that way and then of taking out a book. But it's not your book that you own and can do anything with. It's now a book that you are going to borrow and you have to take care of it and return it because one of the first things you learn when you go to a library and get your card is that there are other children who also would like that book and your job is to take care of it and to return it promptly so that other people can have it too. Such a basic concept and yet a profound lesson about how we treat each other in our civil society. The American Library Association estimates there are a total of 1.5 billion visits per year at U.S. libraries. These range from the modest lending facility in a remote rural community, where sometimes a single librarian works, to the Library of Congress in Washington, the world's largest. Imagine that the library didn't exist. You know, imagine that we didn't have this concept called the library. And you and I had this conversation today, and we came up with it, and we thought, you know, this is a really good thing, this library idea. Why don't you and I walk together to City Hall or the State House or to the White House? Let's go to the White House. Why not? And we say, we've been sitting together, and we've come up with this amazing idea. Uh, we think that the United States should invest in these things we're calling libraries. And what we, uh, what we ask is that uh, the government uh, work with philanthropy to build buildings in every neighborhood, and we'll, you know, we'll call them libraries. Some will be really grand and made of marble, and others will be small houses, um, but we'll have them everywhere. 
This vision for repositories of knowledge accords with Benjamin Franklin's observations about libraries during colonial times. He wrote in his autobiography that libraries have become a great thing in itself and continually increasing. These libraries have improved the general conversation of Americans. So in Eric Kleinenberg's proposal for contemporary libraries, we are going to stock them with uh, our shared cultural heritage, you know, books and music and videos uh, and periodicals, and we will put computers in so people who can't afford computers can have them. We'll program them morning to night uh, with everything from, you know, music classes to book groups to karaoke hours to film nights to current events conversations to English as a second language classes and special classes for people who have just gotten out of prison and need to get jobs. By the way, uh, we want to make sure that everybody in America who just happens to be in America that day uh, is welcome and, and has access to it, so it doesn't matter what your race is or your religion or your social class or your ethnicity. Oh, and one last thing, Mr. President, um, everything there is going to be free. Um, you know, we're going to share, share this on an honor system. Ben Franklin might be proud. we heard from folks at the Turner Free Library in the small New England town of Randolph, Massachusetts. The original library there was housed in a granite structure dating to 1874, one of the first libraries in the state. In the new building, residents can be seen peering out tall picture windows seated in comfortable chairs by a small stone pool of flowing water and countless stacks of books. It's a place where people come to study, to work, or just to relax. Why do you use the library? I use it because I love to read. Um, and now, I think, as I'm getting older, I like the quiet spaces. So you can come, and since the renovation, there are like little quiet rooms that you can go into with no televisions, no radios, just, you know, you and a book. There's nothing quite like being in here. It's a real thing, you know, get you out of the house and, and, you know, pass the time with some nice people and find good books that I can't wait to get home and start. And if it's really good, I can't put it down. But I don't worry about it because there's so many more here. If I get a book that I kind of halfway through I don't like and I'm really done with it, not worried, come, come bring a bag and get another one. Never-ending supply. I love it. Every Wednesday we have the Student Success Center where some of us graybeards offer homework help to high school kids if they want to have help with any subject. Um, I, was an, I was a nurse for 42 years, but my background is in chemistry and biology, so I'm willing to do any of that. So do you enjoy mentoring or tutoring the kids? Yes, I do. We've got to get this next generation in line and just the whole critical thinking part, not blindly accepting what somebody says, but really think about it. And, you know, if necessary, go back to the books and look it up yourself. I didn't mean 
The kids stream in from Randolph High usually around 2 p.m. They're drawn to screens, especially video games and the digital media center, but also to books or doing homework on laptops. Kendall is in 10th grade. I borrow the SAT books and a lot of the test prep books because I want to prepare for that since I'm like a sophomore and I want to like prepare for college. Do you ever borrow fiction books from the library? Sometimes. I usually borrow informational books such as like how to like be positive or like how to manage time like like books like that. I learned how to like focus and stay quiet and really think about myself here. In the library you can't really be that loud and when you're here it's very quiet so you can really think about like how your day went and you can really think about um, just what you want to do. It's like a really relieving place to be. This is Sharon Parrington-Wright showing me one of the library's most popular rooms, the Media Center, which houses Turner Free Studio. It's actually quite lovely to walk past it. Uh, depending on what time of day you go by, you might hear singing, you might hear musical instruments, you might hear a podcast in progress. Uh, so just being a bystander, like as I walk from the elevator past, you go, oh, what's going on in there today? And what exactly is made in this room? It varies uh, with the user, so it's as we have a number of options. It's really up to their imagination. But that very, very large iMac also has a lot of very, very expensive software on it. Uh, so if they want to make music, if they want to edit photos, if they want to make videos, people come and they experiment. They try things out, they see what works, they see what doesn't. It's really a, a user-led space. As digital media proliferate across society, these facilities are increasingly common at public libraries. The ability to create and edit original content finds a growing audience here. We have small business owners, we have podcasters, we have pastors coming in to record sermons, we have musicians coming in to work on demo tapes, uh, I use it for YouTube videos, we have a YouTube channel for the library so we edit our videos in here too. Uh, so it's in use constantly. Seniors and other adults come to seek help digitizing photo collections or old videos for posterity. But in after-school hours, it's the teenagers who energize the media facilities. And sometimes you'll find the kids teaching their elders about using this technology. It's not just the library is a place where people consume other people's creativity, but they also can express and share their own creativity. They can create. Again, Lara Clark of the American Library Association. And this idea of maker spaces and creation, um, whether that's in the STEM kind of sciences um, and laboratory kinds of things, or it's creative expression. Um, this is something that we're seeing in a lot more libraries. And I think that's very appealing for young people. Like they're the they're the captains of their own journey. And libraries have always done that with reading and encouraging folks to make their own choices. It's not what their parent chooses for them, although their parent should guide that, um, particularly if they're younger. But it's about really encouraging people to make this choice for themselves and to pursue their own passion. We're 
We're exploring the longtime mission of our public libraries, as well as recent innovations as information technology continues to evolve. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Libraries Reimagined, to obtain audio downloads or CDs, please visit humanmedia.org. This is the Harold Washington Library Center, a stately red brick downtown building that is the cornerstone of the Chicago Public Library System. The original library, established in 1873, was housed in the old water tower. Back then, inside the tower, they lined the round walls with bookshelves. Today, the new library has 10 floors and is considered one of the world's largest. It's where I met sociologist Eric Kleinenberg. We are sitting here today in an incredible public library solely because you and I have inherited from the generations that came before us an institution born of a principled commitment to uh, advance the public good, to fund uh, public institutions with a public-minded mission because all of us are better off for it, because everyone should be able to make something better of themselves, because we want this to be a country where people can advance and get ahead and do better uh, and study and work hard and be together and participate in thriving, living, uh, democratic, open, accessible institutions. That, that is something that you and I have inherited because generations that came before us, people in red states and blue states, Republicans, Democrats, across the aisle, work together to build institutions like that. And they exist in virtually every single community of the United States, and they are locally run. Absolutely. And we are so lucky. We are so lucky to have inherited that. It's, it's an, our lives are so much better. Our, the cities we live in are better. The communities we live in are better. The suburbs we live in are, are better. Our collective culture is better. The legacy handed down to us by these enduring institutions offers not just the treasures of knowledge housed in their collections and made freely available to the public. Librarians understand it offers to patrons the opportunities that the knowledge unlocks. Librarian Richard Ashby outside Pittsburgh leads the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. My motto is with literacy and justice for all. And I live, and I live by that motto. Help spread literacy. Help spread equality. Help spread equity. Not only within my employees, but within the community and people who walk through that door. You see they tell you in America, with liberty and justice for all. Oh, that's beautiful. That's one of the most beautiful phrases ever penned. But in reality, it's literacy and justice. Because if you do not have literacy, you're going to receive very little justice. Back when he worked in the Philadelphia area, Richie founded a nonprofit group called Literacy Nation, which promotes basic reading, speaking, and writing skills for youth and adults. Years ago, my wife and I built a library in West Philadelphia, 12 rooms, over 5,000 books. And um, we came to work one morning, and there was a bullet hole in the door of the library. 
And so she said, listen, there's a bullet hole in the door. You have to pack up the books in the library. We can't stay here. The neighborhood's too bad. Um, I, we can't afford you getting shot in this building while people are outside doing stuff. So I, as I was packing the library and I, I had the stuff on this, moving it out, out of the building, God said, hey, build a library here on the street. That way you can see if there's trouble. So I put the tables on the street. I put the, la the laptops on tables. I put a table of new books, a table for the children, a table of used books for the adults. I made a ready, ready reference section behind me out of milk crates, and I called myself the sidewalk librarian. Richie would arrange the books and laptops on a sidewalk in an inner-city neighborhood known for drug dealing. If they can sell poison, he said, I can give away the antidote. And then I started setting up sidewalk librarians all over Philadelphia, did some in Queens, did a sidewalk librarian in Brooklyn, took the act up to Detroit, and I'm known as a sidewalk librarian. I will stand and I will give out books on the sidewalk. I will set up laptops on the sidewalk and do library services from the sidewalk. It wasn't exactly a lending library, more a source of free reading material that need not be returned. As long as you were able to make use of a book, that accomplished Richie's mission. Yes, give it to a cousin, a friend, just give it away. Libraries, unlike pretty much any other institution, are serving cradle to grave. Michelle Jeske, City Librarian of Denver. So you've got all the generations you're trying to serve. You've got all the socioeconomic backgrounds. You've got all the interests and passions and all the things that people come here to explore. And you have people that are having a crisis that day or an ongoing crisis. So that is a lot to have to manage. And yet we feel like all of that is within our mission. So I'm not going to say it's easy, but I do think it's our work. And we don't do it alone. We have had developed some really amazing partnerships, whether that's helping, you know, make sure that parents and caregivers have what they need to help their little ones, to helping older adults with the struggles that they might be going through, to helping the genealogist, to helping the person who's um, misusing a substance and struggling with that. Um, that's all part of the job. It keeps it very interesting, I would say. <laughs> and, and we're highly relevant, and I think that we will remain so. And there's something about the architectural design, especially of our great libraries, which, while secular institutions, have almost the feeling of a sacred space. You can link to stunning photographs depicting these elegant geometries at our website, humanmedia.org. French photographer Thibault Poirier calls his library series Palaces of Self-Discovery. They're scenes evoking an ambience of contemplation. Sociologist Eric Kleinenberg. I can tell you about so many stories I heard from people who, who discovered something fundamental about themselves in a library, whose lives changed because of the time they spent in a library, who grew more independent, more self-aware. And it's striking to me that our generation today, the, those of us who are on earth right now, those of us who live in this country right now, haven't stopped often enough to ask what we are leaving to the people who come after us. You know, what are we doing to this institution that we have inherited? How are we making sure it's better for the people who come after us? The famous seventh generation adage among Native Americans. Yeah, exactly right. 
And I worry about that. And I worry about that every time I walk into a library that um, uh, is neglected. A couple of years back, Forbes magazine published an article by an economics professor at Long Island University proposing that Amazon replace local libraries and, quote, save taxpayers lots of money while enhancing the value of their stock. The article ignited a firestorm of protest by some library patrons and especially by librarians. Within days, Forbes deleted the piece from its website. Perhaps more interesting than the ill-fated proposal was the ardent defense of libraries it elicited. People love that the library belongs to them. Lara Clark of the American Library Association. We buy more copies of books that are popular, but we buy other books too because we want to have a really balanced collection. So our driver is about meeting the needs of our communities, not strictly what's going to sell the most copies. And I think people value that. And we see it and hear it all the time, that that's still important to them. It gets challenging sometimes when budgets are tight. People are like, oh, what can we do away with? Um, but in every case, I think libraries bring more value um, than the investment that is made into them. And so there's been studies about return on investment, those kinds of things. So for the funds that are invested in library collections, library staff, library buildings, um, the return on that investment is so great. And how is that measured, return on investment in a public library? If you had to pay for this, what would you pay? So that's fairly straightforward, right? Like if I had to buy all the books that I check out, if I had to rent the room instead of getting free access to a meeting room, if I had to buy the CDs and videos, etc. What is, if we add all that up, um, what does that add up to relative to the taxes that I pay? And by and large, it's, you know, in different communities, cities and states have done these kinds of evaluations and they'll see four to one or five to one or six to one. You mentioned cutbacks. Yeah. Libraries are frequent targets when local governments that fund them trim their budgets. What are some of the, the common impacts of that? My greatest experience around those kinds of threats was during the Great Recession. You know, people would say, wait, this is where I come with my kids for early learning. This is how I get my kids ready for school to start before they're even in their K through 12 environment. This is where I go. I have less money myself, so I am checking out more materials. Um, this is where I go to hear a chamber orchestra in their public space for free. I have seen municipalities across the country slash library budgets, you know, at, at the moment when, from my perspective, the library is most needed. Eric Kleinenberg, author of Palaces for the People. Because if you do have a homeless crisis, the library is going to be a key institution for you. If you do have a health crisis, the library is going to be a key institution for you. If you're concerned about how literate and educated young people are, you know, the library is a key institution. If you're concerned about the collapse of, of civil society and trust and community, you know, you better well fund your library. Um, if you're concerned about the state of democracy, if you want make, to make sure people are registered to vote or that people even uh, are counted in the census, those are things the library does really, really well. So I see the library as essential social infrastructure, but I don't think that most city legislatures see it that way. And as a consequence, um, when libraries shut down, there 
not open at night. They're not open on the weekends. Um, the bathrooms don't work very well, and people who rely on those bathrooms can't use them. Um, they can't register for people to vote. Uh, they can't help people who are recently out of the criminal justice system, out of prison, uh, find a job. They can't promote computer literacy. They can't promote learning English as a second language. They don't have after-school programs for teenagers. The teenagers wind up in the streets. I mean, there's all kinds of consequences. They can't do as much care uh, work uh, connecting older people with institutions and with one another, and so you get more older people socially isolated and lonely and unhappy. Um, the, you know, the ripple effects are tremendous. Libraries save lives. Rochelle Brogan, a member of the social work team at the Denver Public Library. We save lives with Narcan. We save lives by helping people find shelter, by sitting and listening and being compassionate and, and, and being here for people, being the resource that is free and that is for everybody. Anybody, everybody's welcome to come in here. Nobody's turned away. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Jake Kavicki, Kathy Graham, and Ken Rogers. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Steve Martin, Matthew Simonson, Corey Jones, Margaret Krauss, Miles Blackwood Robinson, David Cruz, and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media. To download an audio copy of this program and access other resources, including the astonishing photos of great world libraries, please visit humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. You can also access our other programs and send us an email from our website. And you can purchase a CD copy of this program by phone. Please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio, available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and elsewhere. This segment, part of our project, Libraries Reimagined, is Humankind program number 277. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind.